So have you seen enough of the Grinch who stole Christmas for this year? Our daughters were huge Dr. Seuss fans as they were growing up. I think I got green eggs and ham down to where I could almost recite the entire book. Yet as parents, we were never able to skip pages because they'd always catch us. One of the lesser-known books by Dr. Seuss was Marvin K. Mooney, Would You Please Go Now? We loved it because it always made us laugh. It starts with, the time has come, the time is now. Marvin K. Mooney, would you please go now? It seemed Marvin K. Mooney was reluctant to move when called upon, even when given lots of options of how he could move. A theme that certainly translated well to the raising of young children, especially in discussions of cleaning a room, getting shoes on to get out of the house, or helping to pick up toys after an afternoon of play. But let's be honest, when the time has come, are any of us really ready to move? It's an interesting thought for New Year's Day. Are we ready for it to be 2023? Are we open to Jesus maybe interrupting our lives to do something new? Are we willing to follow his lead? It's like we're standing on the edge of a new trail. Will we be all in with what God wants to do and move forward with him? Or will we resist Jesus' invitation to follow? We've just celebrated the good news of Jesus' birth with the angels and the shepherds. We've sung the songs of joy to the world and gloria in excelsis. We've pondered what an amazing gift Jesus' birth was to the world. We've even had a first-hand account from one of the angels himself. Well, sort of. But are we prepared for what this tiny little baby will ask of us when he becomes a grown man? During the Advent season, we spent most of our time in the Gospels of Luke and Matthew, since they are the ones who recorded most of the birth narrative. John was a little more poetic in his Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. One of my favorite passages. But today, we're going to move to the Gospel of Mark. And have you ever noticed that Mark does not even mention the birth of Jesus? Mark's goal seems to be to just record the work and teaching of Jesus' adult life. Mark's Gospel is the shortest of the four, and he's basically giving us little snapshots of Jesus' life and ministry. He keeps his descriptions brief, as though he's turning his camera from scene to scene to scene, keeping our focus on Jesus and Jesus' message and ministry, and not on all of the other things that are happening around him. This leaves plenty of room for other gospel writers to include more detail. Mark was concerned to give us just the facts. Let the readers decide for themselves how to respond to Jesus. We're going to look at the text from the perspective of several of the key players in the first 20 verses of chapter 1. Mark opens the story of Jesus by focusing first on John the Baptist, the voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And then Mark shifts the camera to the moment of Jesus' baptism by John, when the Father and the Spirit are present with the Son. And then another quick shift as the Spirit sends Jesus to the wilderness for 40 days. By verse 14, John the Baptist 
fades out of the picture. You know, John was clear in his teaching that someone was coming after him who was much more important and that his only call was to prepare the way and to point to the one to come. Seemingly in honor of John's own sense of his role in this drama, Mark merely says, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. It's kind of an abrupt beginning to Jesus' ministry. Mark gives us the impression of Jesus just suddenly appearing on the scene, ready to get to work. I get this picture of someone right before a major life event, like a boxer as he enters the ring, a Navy pilot sitting in the cockpit on the deck of an aircraft carrier, a mother being wheeled into the delivery room, a worship leader right before the service begins, a teacher before the bell rings on the first day of school, or a doctor before she enters the operating room. And I even imagine the angels on the very edge of heaven, not wanting to miss a single moment. The curtain is rising on one of the most dramatic events in the world's history to date. And Jesus' first words, the time has come. Now, Jesus is not referring to a specific time in chronological terms, what we call chronos time. No celestial alarm or buzzer was going off. No gongs on some cosmic grandfather clock. Instead, this is what we call Kairos time, a significant moment in time. And Jesus is introducing the arrival of the kingdom, with it, which is both present, even as he is present, since he is the king, and a kingdom which is going to continue through those who will follow him and proclaim his message long after he returns to the Father. So in this Kairos moment, Mark gives us Jesus' opening lines. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Have you ever wondered how and where he said this? Did he walk into a crowd and announce it? Mark said, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The word proclaim would indicate it was like a herald making an announcement of someone or something of great importance. The time has come. But then I wonder, did he say it almost as a prayer to the Father who sent him and to the Spirit who would give him the strength to carry his mission to its ultimate conclusion? The time has come. Not knowing how he said it or whoever it was that heard him say it does not diminish the words he spoke. The announcement is that the time has come and the kingdom of God is near. Jesus is bringing good news to those who hear him preach and teach, those he meets along the road, those he heals and forgives, practically everyone he encounters. And Jesus speaks two imperative commands. Repent and believe the good news. Repent comes from that wonderful word from which we get metamorphosis, to change. It means a change of mind and heart or attitude. And for years, preachers have certainly called their people to repent. Repent from your sin. Repent of your evil ways. And yes, it can feel like a harsh word of judgment, scolding, stirring an emotional sense of guilt. But repent can also be a word of hope and salvation because there is a God who stands ready for us to turn to him and be loved 
accepted, forgiven, healed, made whole, and give us meaning for life and hope for eternity. We do not have to fear responding to this call to repent. And for those of us who have been following Jesus for some time, it can also be a call to come even closer, to go deeper in our walk with Christ, to sense a, a holy disconnect with a status quo faith, and to seek to live in obedience to a call God is placing on our hearts, even if it comes with a cost. Jesus said, repent and believe. Believe in the good news. And this use of the word believe involves not just an agreement with a concept or supporting an idea, like saying, yeah, sure, I believe in God. But rather, it's a commitment to that which is believed. Total commitment. Now, there's a story about a farmer coming into the barn early in the morning, and he's talking to the chickens and the pigs about the desire he has to feed his family a warm breakfast of bacon and eggs. The chicken looks at the pig and says, I understand the farmer's need to feed his family. And the pig replies, well, that's easy for you to say. You can support the idea. But for me, it's a total commitment. There's no, I'll give you just this part of my life for the pig. It's all or nothing. Now, notice, while Mark's camera is focused straight on Jesus, Jesus is then focused straight on us. And he says, repent and believe the good news. When Jesus calls us, we have a choice to follow or to turn away. We can't have a little bit of both. And this is beautifully illustrated in the responses of the first disciples Jesus calls to follow him. And so Mark turns his camera, and now we're at the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is beginning to build his team of disciples who will go on this three-year journey with him. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. Simon and Andrew. Two fishermen, they're hard at work, casting a net into the sea. It's a family business, they're brothers. Fishing is their livelihood. It's how they feed and care for their families. It is their life. Growing up in Maine, I had the opportunity to watch cousins follow their fathers into the fishing business. It is a grueling life. It's a hard life, but it gets in their blood. If you saw the movie The Perfect Storm or are familiar with the story, they portrayed it well about the Gloucester fishermen who could not resist just one more run, to be out on the water, to have the dream catch of their lives. For those who tried to do something else, it was never a fit. They always went back to the sea. So why do you think Simon and Andrew respond so willingly? Well, Jesus talks to them in a language they understand and about which they have a passion, fishing. I will send you out to fish for people. Jesus' call to Simon and Andrew was not about what they would do to earn a living. Jesus called to them and to us, is much deeper. Simon and Andrew hear Jesus call, come follow me. 
Mark doesn't tell us what they discussed. Mark doesn't tell us if they'd seen Jesus before and maybe been contemplating following him later. Mark simply takes this one snapshot of that moment. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Jesus is calling and they respond immediately. They leave everything. It's costly. All their lives, this is what they've done. This is what they've loved. Simon and Andrew leave the family business behind, trusting that all of life's details will be managed. We don't even know who, if anyone, was left holding the nets. Sometimes obedience means leaving some questions unanswered and choosing to trust in the one who holds the future. Well, the camera turns to another pair of brothers. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. James and John are sitting with their father Zebedee and some hired hands, working hard after a long night of fishing. And they're sitting there fixing their nets and cleaning them and mending them and making ready for another night of fishing. And Jesus calls them. Like Simon and Andrew before them, James and John get up, leave their father, the family business, and go after Jesus. Without delay, he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. I've always wondered, what about Zebedee? How did he feel when Jesus came along and plucked his sons right out of his boat and right out of his life? How would you have felt? A friend of mine in seminary felt called to go into missions. And during our media and evangelism class, we had to create some kind of media piece that could be used in churches. She chose to do a slideshow, which told the story of the struggles a parent was having with God, asking his child to go off to a world mission assignment. I do not remember much of the slideshow at all, but I do remember clearly the last dialogue exchange. The parent's voice cried out, but God, you don't understand. He is my only son. And the voice of God said, oh, but I do. Mark doesn't tell us whether Zebedee argued or objected, asked questions, encouraged, or frankly said anything. The snapshot we get is this. Jesus called, they responded. Did you notice something about the response of these four disciples? Simon and Andrew, Simon and Andrew left their nets at once. And without delay, Jesus called James and John, and they left their father. Now, I often get hung up on the practical questions of the immediacy of their response. Did they have a bag packed? Did they take any money with them? Where were they going to stay? How were they going to eat? Over the 40 years, my husband John and I have been serving the church, and even in our seminary years before that, with my mission trip to Ecuador and him to Pakistan, I've usually been pretty good with trusting the Lord for the future, the big picture. But the everyday practical details? So allow me to turn the camera on myself for a moment. When John and I left seminary, we were young, excited, newly married, with our first baby on the way. 
We headed south to New Jersey. Now, when you're from Maine, everything is south. <laughs> While it wasn't New England, it was still the Northeast. And at first, it didn't seem like much of a sacrifice at all. We were living in a beautiful home owned by the church, a nine-room colonial. I loved it. We were able to decorate it, to fix up one of the bedrooms for this new little person who was going to join us soon. We had a wonderful youth group and great friends. God called us there and we were thriving. But after a while, we realized how hard it was to live in this suburb of New York City on the salary of a youth pastor. The teenagers in our youth group had more disposable income than we did. After our first daughter was born and expenses increased, I began to resent rolling pennies to buy milk. Having to choose to forego the, the plastic liners for the kitchen trash can and use the grocery bag instead, just in order to buy some soup and bread. And then four weeks before Becca's first Christmas, I got a bill from the IRS for $2,000. I had made a mistake on our taxes. I did not realize I had to pay Social Security tax on the value of the house we lived in. $2,000. It could have been $2 million. We didn't have it. A friend from church was coming over that day to visit, and I began to share with her. Well, let's be honest. I was complaining loudly about how the church did not pay us enough to live in this community of AT&T executives and New York City stockbrokers. She looked at me and said, you know, your face looks really ugly when you complain about money. Has Jesus called you here? If so, you need to believe he's going to provide for you. Well, years later, she and I were reminiscing about that conversation, and she chuckled, saying, I really can't believe I dared to say that to you. But I responded by telling her that that was a transformative moment for me. I didn't know it at the time, but I was right on the edge of a significant life lesson. Sometimes obedience means leaving some questions unanswered and choosing to trust in the one who holds the future. So that night, John and I prayed about the tax bill and our financial situation. I repented of my attitude and resentment. And in that moment, I chose to believe the good news that God would provide. The next morning, after John had gone to work, one of my best friends called. Lauren was another young mom in the church and one of our youth volunteers, along with her husband. She said, Paul and I were praying before he went to work today about what we should do with the tithe from the Christmas bonus he's going to get. Do you guys need $2,000? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I explained our situation and admitted, yes, we, our family personally needs $2,000. But if they gave it to us, it would not be tax deductible, not like giving to the church. She didn't care about that. They sensed the Lord telling them we needed it and she would bring the check over the next day. I hung up the phone, holding Becca on my hip, and just stood there, stunned, tears streaming down my face. Thank you, Lucille, for being the voice of Jesus, lovingly calling me to repent. Thank you, John, for being all in with me and praying with me and helping me give this to the Lord. 
Thank you, Holy Spirit, for helping me believe and trust. Thank you, Lauren and Paul, for listening to the Lord's leading and being obedient to how he was asking you to steward your finances and share from your bounty. The kingdom of God came very, very near that day. Now, I'd like to say that was the only time I had to repent of something and choose to believe that God would provide, that I've fully trusted him without wavering ever since. (laughs) Well, the cost of following Jesus came in other forms, and each time when I would find myself struggling, I would hear Lucille's voice in my head. And I was usually standing on the edge of something new, and was faced once again with the choice to follow the one who holds the future. Well, When the four fishermen heard Jesus' words, they immediately turned and followed him. The call to follow someone like Jesus in the ancient world was an invitation into a rabbi-student relationship. Jesus was their teacher, and they were being called to walk alongside him, to learn from him, to be trained in ministry, to be equipped for the ultimate call Jesus would extend to go, teach, and serve others. They gathered what little they needed for the journey and followed him. And if you continue to read the accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, you will find that others who were invited to follow decided the cost was too high. Friends, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. What is the edge on which you find yourself standing? Have you heard an invitation from Jesus, but not yet responded? Is it the potential cost, one of those unanswered questions that's keeping you from saying yes? Is he calling you to come to him? Choose to trust him. Respond by checking out Alpha. Is he calling you to follow him into the waters of baptism? Choose to trust him. Respond by signing up for the next Explore Baptism. Is he calling you to serve? Choose to trust him and respond by exploring the various opportunities. Is he calling you to steward your finances? Choose to trust him. Respond by connecting with our pastor of stewardship. Is he calling you to make Grace Chapel your official church home? then choose to trust him. Respond by saying you are all in and come to the next Explore membership. Sometimes obedience means leaving some questions unanswered and choosing to trust in the one who holds the future. Simon, Andrew, James, and John were were all in. Jesus didn't ask them to be something they were not or forget everything they'd learned in the past. Jesus came to make them fishers of people. And they had no idea what that meant. But they knew they were on the edge of something new. And they were ready to go. Well, it's 2023. And we are on the edge of something new. So Grace Chapel, men and women, young people and seasoned disciples, the time has come. The time is now. Trusting Jesus together, can we please go now. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you 
that you know us intimately, you know us personally, you know the unanswered questions in our minds, you know our need to want to understand every detail before we respond. God, you have created us, you have named us, and you have called us. So I pray this day as we approach the communion table, that it would be a day where we're able to say, I'm all in. Whatever it is, whatever the edge is that each of us find ourselves teetering on, may we have the courage and the strength from you, Holy Spirit, to answer yes, that the time has come and I will go. To the praise of your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.